church, if you could please open to the book of Acts, the book of Acts chapter 1. As you turn there, in lieu of a catchy introduction, I'm going to just talk to you a minute about this book. This is going to be our next sermon series. I haven't yet decided if we're going to go through the whole book or maybe just the first half up to 12, but we are going to start in chapter 1 this week. The full title of the book is The Acts of the Apostles. This is 28 chapters of biblical narrative. It's telling a story, but not just a make-believe story. This is a historical account. Some have called this the first work of church history, and I think that's appropriate. In these 28 chapters, we have accounts of the early church after Christ has died, resurrected, and ascended into heaven. It's much like the gospel accounts and that it's telling events, but it's unlike the Gospels in that the Gospels have segments of teaching in them, and then segments of narrative, and then teaching and narrative, where Acts is mostly narrative. We'll see some sermons within there, but there's not a lot of direct teaching for us. The title, Acts of the Apostles, has been around for a long time. However, many of the apostles have little to no mention in the book. One commentator, and I think I agree with him, suggested that a better title for this might have been the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. We'll see why in just a moment. It's about the start of the church. The Apostles are the ones involved in doing so. But what we're going to see is that the Apostles are not really the main characters in this book. God is the main character. More specifically, God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, The word Spirit or Holy Spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit, appears in this book 57 times in 28 chapters. Who wrote the book? It is Luke, the doctor historian. He also wrote the Gospel of Luke that bears his name. And these books are often together. You'll often hear them referred to as Luke Acts. It is two volumes of one great work. They're both addressed to Theophilus, which means lover of God. And in Luke's gospel, there's a sort of title ascribed to Theophilus, most excellent. We'll see this come up later in Acts. It's used to refer to Felix and to Festus, so it denotes some type of royalty or importance. We don't know if Theophilus was a believer or if he was someone whom Luke was trying to witness to, but that's what we know. Acts picks up where Luke left off, and there's sort of an overlap between them. They both include Jesus' final instructions to wait in Jerusalem until they receive the promise of the Father, and then they both include the ascension of Jesus into heaven. And finally, what is this book really about? Why do we have this book? Simply, it's about the early church, how it started, what it looked like, and how it grew. And what we'll see is that this power to grow has less to do with the church itself and more to do with the power of God behind it. So with all that being said, let's stand together for the reading of God's holy word this morning. Out of respect, reverence, and awe for the holy scriptures, I will be reading all of Acts chapter 1. If you need to sit down, that's okay. Acts chapter 1, I'll start in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach 
until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, And said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldamah, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Bersabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Pray with me, please. Holy Spirit, you who have inspired these words, would you now speak them into our hearts powerfully according to the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. This morning in our passage, I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now that we're going to make three observations about the early church. We're going to see God's power in the church. 
God's purpose for the church, and God's provision to the church. So God's power, God's purpose, and God's provision. First, in verses 1 through 8, we see God's power in the church. Now, this first chapter of Acts falls in kind of a strange gap of time. Christ has lived, and then he has died. And then there's this period of time between his death, resurrection, and then the ascension, and then the reception of the Holy Spirit. This is where we are. So the disciples, Jesus has finished his ministry, he is ascending into heaven, and now they are without both Jesus and the Holy Spirit. A strange gap of time. Luke recaps his gospel to Theophilus in verses 1 through 5. He says Jesus did and taught. He died on the cross for the sins of the world. He rose from the grave victoriously and ascended into into heaven. And yet the disciples have not yet received the promise of the Father in verse 4. Verse 4 says, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise. So it's almost like the disciples are in a holding pattern. They know that something is going to happen, but they don't get to do it yet or see it yet. So in verse 5, we see the promise of the Father that they haven't yet received. It says, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So it's at this point that Jesus ascends. The disciples ask him before he goes, well, what next? They're asking about the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. Is this what comes up next? Many of us could probably do with hearing Jesus' answer here. He says, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Here's the good old boy translation. It's none of your business, essentially. Well, what comes next on the timeline, Jesus? That's not for you to know. It's none of your business. It's not for us to know that. Now, some might argue, well, but we have the book of Revelation. And and Jesus warned us in the gospel about reading the signs of the times and the seasons. I think what Jesus is doing here in Acts is he's pointing out an unhealthy obsession and trying to realign the disciples' focus, the apostles' focus. There was something that would distract them from what they are called to do, and sometimes it does the same for us. And here's why I think that. The very first word here in verse 8, after Jesus says this, it's not for you to know, verse 8, but. It's not for you to know, but. Jesus says, don't worry about the times or the seasons. That's not for you to know, but this is what I want you to worry about. This is where I want your energy. And what does Jesus tell them? In verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The disciples were expecting Jesus to continue to do stuff for them. But what Jesus wanted was for them to do work for him. They were no longer going to be sitting on the sidelines watching Jesus work. They were going to be the ones working, and Christ Jesus would be working through them. And to do that, they needed power. Jesus wanted to equip them for ministry. My life as a Christian 
is not about what can be done for me. But what I can do, in this case specifically for Jesus. If you were a Christian, you don't live for yourself anymore. You live for Jesus now. That's your purpose. Doesn't this tie in perfectly with our theme for the year? Well, where does this power come from? Where does this empowerment for ministry come from? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, I want to call your attention back to verse 2. We kind of summarize these, but there's a specific phrase here that we need to see this morning. It says that Jesus was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit. Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Doesn't that phrase seem odd to you? Why would Jesus need to give commands through the Holy Spirit if he was there in person? Why couldn't he just give the command? I want you to remember that part of what Jesus came to do, yes, he came to die in our place, but he also came to live in our place. He had to live as a perfect man in order to be able to die in the place of sinful men. And so that means he needed to live as a man. He's still fully God, but there is an element where he gives us an example to follow. Remember that Jesus, in coming to live in our place, Philippians 2.7 says that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of of men. So though Jesus is all-knowing, all-powerful, omnipresent, he's fully God, he lived in time and space, in a location, in humble submission and dependence upon God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, just like we are supposed to. And he did that because we don't do that. So he did it for us. This doesn't mean, as some modern theologians might suggest, that Jesus gave up his divine attributes. This emptying himself doesn't mean that, well, I'm just going to give this up for a while and I'm not going to exist that way anymore. No, he still is fully God. He never ceased to be fully God when he took on flesh. The point is that Jesus, though fully God, lived as a man. The same power that Jesus used to do everything he did on earth now lives in us, his disciples. We have the exact same power that Jesus used. This is why, if you remember from the book of John, in chapter 14, verse 12, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. And then in John 16, two chapters later, he says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus goes to the Father, he sends the Helper to us, which is a promise to receive the power that Jesus had so that we might not only do his works, but greater works than Jesus. Think about that for just a moment. Jesus knows that we are going to do greater works than he did. 
and he told us that ahead of time. You might look at Jesus and say, well, that's Jesus. He's the Son of God. Of course he walked on water, and of course he did all these things. Jesus is telling us, you'll do something greater. How is it that we can do something greater than all of those things? It is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' power could have just come directly from himself, but he chose to work through us through the Holy Spirit. He did it in his life in verse 2, and then now he is giving us the exact same power to do even greater works. The secret to a powerful Christian life is the Holy Spirit. The secret to a powerful church is the Holy Spirit. It's not the right church growth paradigm. It's not having the right vision for the church. It's the Holy Spirit. We can do all the right things in our power and still fail because we are not relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. The reason that our churches and many Christians don't experience the power of God is because we have chosen to go without it. There's much less risk involved if I'm the one in control. Now I don't have to trust. I can do what I feel comfortable doing. I don't really want to do that, so I'm not going to do it. It's okay. And we'll grow just fine. We'll get a ton of people in the building. But our churches, though they sometimes fill up, lack the power that we see in the, Old Te- in the New Testament here, in the early church. Why? Why do we lack this power? Because we do not tap into it. It's here. If you're a Christian this morning, the Holy Spirit lives in you right now. You have unlimited power at your fingertips. You just have to tap into it. It's there if you're born again. Luke wants us to know where the early church's power came from. So in these first several verses of Acts, though the word Holy Spirit appears 57 times, just in these first several verses, we already see it over and over and over. The early church's power didn't come from themselves. It wasn't Paul, it wasn't Peter, it was the Holy Spirit. God's power for the church is in the Holy Spirit. Number two, God's purpose for the church. God's purpose for the church. Picking back up here in verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What does God want us to do with the power that he has given us? He tells them specifically, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. Verse 8 is crucial in the book of Acts. It sets up the whole rest of the book. In the whole book of Acts, we see the gospel spread almost like if you were to throw a stone into a pond and you see this ripple effect where it just starts going out. That's kind of what we're seeing here in Acts 1.8 and we'll see it come to fruition throughout the book. Each location is a wider circle than the previous. But there's something else about these locations. Remember, the disciples just asked about the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. Is it at this time that you'll restore the kingdom to Israel? 
And in a sense, these names speak to this restoration. So it's almost like Jesus wants them to stop worrying so much about, okay, is this the time? Is this the time? Is this the time? Is this the time that we do this? And he's saying, I want you to be filled with power and then to be obedient as my witnesses, and then this will happen. Don't worry about, is this the time yet? The time is now. Here's power, now go. Jesus gave the early Christians in the early church their purpose. You will be my witnesses. To be a Christian is to be a witness. That's our purpose. We are to testify to something that's happened. I am to testify. I'm a witness. Jesus is still working. How do I know? Let me tell you how he's worked in my life. That's called being a witness. That's why whenever we share the gospel with someone or our testimony, what do we call it? Witnessing. Why do we call it that? Because we are bearing witness to something that's happened. But many Christians, I think, feel incomplete because you were designed to be a witness, but we never witness. We never tell people about what's happened. We just kind of assume that people know. We don't talk about it to others. But that's our purpose. Our purpose is not to enjoy life, though I do enjoy my life as a Christian, and I know you will too. Our purpose isn't to make people happy, though I know that people are going to be happiest if they follow Christ. Our purpose isn't to be popular or well-liked, though I would certainly love for those things to be true. One more. Our purpose is not to convert the world or to make the church as big as possible, though this is absolutely what I want. Hear me clearly. We should desire those things hope for those things, and work for those things. But that is not our purpose. It is merely a potential outcome of fulfilling our purpose. Our purpose is to be a witness. Sometimes that means that we will be faithful witnesses without seeing hardly anyone come to Christ. Sometimes that means that we will be a faithful witness without seeing our churches bursting at the seams. Famous missionaries of our past, like William Carey, Adoniram Judson, they're recognized for their faithfulness, but sometimes they went years without seeing a single convert. Or they minister for 12 years in an area, and they have 18 converts to show for 12 years. Yet we look at them and we say, faithful, faithful witness. They didn't fail. One of the failures of the modern church is its confusion of its God-given purpose with the outcomes or results of faithfulness to that purpose. We've come to believe that if our churches are big, that means that we've fulfilled our purpose. We did it. Our churches are huge. But this is not the same thing. Unfortunately, sometimes we pursue the outcome or the results at the expense of our actual purpose. We can be a big church without being a faithful witness. There's a lot of churches like that. They're real big, but they are not faithful witnesses. So would you say that that church has fulfilled its purpose? Put simply, 
Sometimes we work harder to look faithful than we do to actually be faithful. We want to look like we've got it going on. We can't ruin the way we look because then that will ruin our effectiveness. If people know if we have a bad image, they won't come into our church anymore. And then we'll fail. We've already failed at that point. We grow our churches and inflate our numbers at the expense of being a faithful witness to those whom we are bringing in. And the result of this confusion in churches is that a lot of them are either full of either immature Christians or unsaved Christians who don't know Christ at all. And we don't know because we're not worried about being a witness. We're just worried about getting people in the door. If we had been paying attention, we would see now what many around us have already seen. There are already people sounding off the alarm. We are in a great evangelical recession. Some say, well, it's coming down the road. Many are saying, it's already here. Our numbers are inflated. They've been going down for years. I believe that this is why. We've sacrificed being faithful so that we can be successful. And then we call it faithful. In Acts 1.8, we see the purpose of the church very clearly. To be witnesses to the world. Now we do this hoping that many come to faith. Hoping that our churches would be filled. I would love for every pew in this building, in the balcony, to be packed with people. Eager to hear God's word. Eager to be mobilized for ministry. Absolutely we want that. But we cannot confuse that hope with our purpose to be a faithful witness of Jesus Christ. I think this confusion has also had a negative effect upon our personal evangelism as well. Many Christians live their entire lives without ever being able to experience the blessing of leading someone to Christ. Many Christians, the surveys show, also live their lives not only not leading someone to Christ, but never even sharing their testimony with someone or the gospel, how to be saved. A Lifeway study in 2012 revealed that almost half, I think it was 48% of regular churchgoers, they go to church at least, the way they define that is go to church at least once a month or more. 48% have never invited a single person to church. If you talk about kind of dipping your toe in the water of evangelism, that's about as shallow as it gets. (laughs) Just invite someone to church. Hey, you want to come to church? No? Okay, cool. Done. Did it. Took like 10 seconds. 48% had not even done that once. Why? I believe that this confusion plays a major role. We're afraid. What if if I'm rejected? What if I tell someone about Jesus and they don't become a Christian? Does that mean I did it wrong? I I probably said the wrong thing. It's my fault now that they're going to go to hell one day. I've failed. If I share the gospel with 10 people and 10 out of 10 say no, I failed 10 times. That creates fear. Now I'm afraid to step out and to share the gospel with someone. What if I fail? 
I'm not sufficient for these things. I don't know my Bible like that pastor does or like my Sunday school teacher does. So who am I to share the gospel with someone? We're crippled by fear. Subconsciously, the way we think about it, I will be a failure. Listen to me. It is not a failure when you share the gospel with someone and that person doesn't become a Christian. You didn't fail. The only way to fail is to not tell them. That's the failure. Not telling them. You would be surprised when I did student ministry how this would just, it's like you turned on a light bulb with students. So afraid of getting questions because they get it in school already. If their teachers are not kind of subtly pushing these things, they're watching TikTok videos or Twitter videos of people who claim to be these intellectuals and here's the ultimate argument against Christianity. They are bombarded with it. It's all around them. If anybody's going to be afraid of messing up, surely it's them. But I've seen in student ministries, whenever this change takes place and you realize the only failure is not saying something to someone. It's okay if they say no. That doesn't mean I haven't been faithful. I've seen students start giving up their Wednesday nights, getting in his truck, going down to, when I was in Shreveport, it was the boardwalk, going down to the boardwalk, having little surveys and just talking around talking to people. They take a group of them. Hey, look, can you fill out a survey for us, a youth group? People aren't going to say no to a bunch of kids. They did it every time. They take the survey and they're like, hey, is it, would it be okay if we talk to you while you take it? Yeah. Okay. Hey, do you go to church anywhere? Oh, well, no. I would get all kinds of stories. Most of them did not get to lead someone to Christ in that experience. But you know what they did every week? They went back out every single Wednesday before church, and that's what they did every single week. And they grew. And now many of them are going into ministry and going around the world and have led several to Christ. It takes this first step of realizing you are not a failure when someone doesn't become a Christian. You're only a failure when you fail to be a witness. Our job is to be a witness. I don't want anybody to reject the gospel, but we can't let our fear of rejection keep us from being faithful. We have to be witnesses. The reason God gives us power as Christians is to carry out his purpose for our lives. But a lot of times we only want his power for the selfish reasons. I don't want your power to witness. I just want your power to free me from certain sins. I don't want your power to witness. I just want your power to help me overcome my anxiety or my fear. I just want your power to help me overcome my addiction or my lust. I'm not saying we shouldn't want those things. But part of us should be using that power not just for selfish reasons. Again, not about me. Does God want to use his power to change us? Yes, but that's not the point. The point is, are you using God's power to fulfill God's purposes or only yours? Are you using God's power to be a faithful witness of the gospel? Number three, God's provision to the church. Verses 12 through 26. So after this, Jesus ascends. The disciples are initially left dumbstruck, and two angels basically tell the disciples to stop standing around. Hey, why are you standing here looking into heaven? He's going to come back the same way you saw him go. He's going to come back. So the disciples return to Jerusalem, and they wait, just as they were instructed. Now keep in mind, they have not received the Holy Spirit yet. They haven't received that power yet. So in the meantime, you know what they do? They gather together, look at this, 
They returned, verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. You know what they do? They devote themselves to prayer. Do you know what this is? In the Bible, right here, this is called corporate prayer. This is as opposed to private prayer. This is a group of people praying. I've heard, oddly enough, very strange, people say, the Bible doesn't talk about praying in public like this together. The Bible tells us to just pray in our closet and not in public. Well, then the early church got it wrong immediately, if that's the case. What we see here in the Bible is corporate prayer. And it's not only that this is biblical, it's the very first thing the gathered church did. The very first thing. Jesus is in heaven. These angels up here. Hey, what are y'all waiting for? Oh, yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. We need to go back to Jerusalem. That's what he said. We're going to go back to Jerusalem. Hey, what should we do? Hey, let's just pray. Let's just pray. We don't know what to do. Let's ask God. He'll tell us. Let's pray. They did. They got together. They devoted themselves. Devoted themselves to prayer in one accord. Next, Peter suggests replacing Judas, the betrayer. And look at his reasoning here in verse 16. He says, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand through the mouth of David. Even before receiving the Holy Spirit, Peter has access to the Holy Spirit's guidance through what? The scriptures. He's not even filled with the Spirit yet. When he prays, Lord, how, what do I do? It's like God saying, you don't need a feeling. <laughs> you got the book. Here it is. You don't need to wait around to feel tingly. Here it is. Think about how huge this is for us. Even on those days where you feel useless. You feel like God is just so far from me right now. There's no way I can hear from God. I don't feel it. You can hear from him in about seven seconds. You open up your Bible and you just start reading it. And you are hearing from God. The scriptures are inspired by God. And it all happened through the Holy Spirit. Peter continues by quoting Psalm 69 and then Psalm 109. And he suggests that the disciples should replace Judas to bring the number of apostles up to 12. And the qualification for apostleship is here in verse 21. They had to be present with Jesus, starting from the baptism of John all the way to the ascension, so that they might be a personal witness of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That apostle needed to be able to say, I was there when Jesus was baptized. I was there when he taught these things. I was there when Jesus died. I was there when he came out of the grave. When he appeared, I was there. I was there when he ascended. So in all these moments in the scriptures, when we see the 12 apostles following Jesus, it wasn't just the 12 apostles. It was a mass of disciples, even at the ascension. We look at that and we just see their names and we just kind of assume it's only them. There were many disciples. They were all traveling around together. But then this group of apostles were specifically chosen. And they had to be a first-hand testimony. 
One quick application for us this morning, because I've seen this even around here. Anyone who claims today to be an apostle is nuts. Run away from them. I'm just going to say it real simple. They're nuts. Run away from them. They can't fulfill this. This office is done. They are trying to claim an authority that they do not have. So run away. So two disciples are put forward, Joseph and Matthias. Now, how to select the right man? What did they do? They held a special business meeting. They gave a one-week notice. They sent it out in the mail, announcements, alerts to everyone. They gathered the next week to be greeted by fellow Christians that they haven't seen in months or years. They filled out a private ballot, sent it in, counted the tallies, and then Matthias just barely made the cut just over the threshold. It's a little funny. <laughs> that's, that's not what they did. They didn't do that. Look at verse 24. And they prayed, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. And then, Verse 26, they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. Now, let me ask you a question. Who was in charge of that church? Who was the leader of that church? Was it Peter? Nope. Well, Peter was the one that got up and spoke and told him what to do. Peter spoke. He didn't tell him what to do. Who was in charge of that church? Was it a deacon board or an elder board? No. Was it a pope? Nope. A presbytery? Mm -mm. It's the Lord Jesus. Who's in charge of this church? Who leads this church? Me? Mm -mm. You the people? No. Now we may think that you would be wrong. The Lord Jesus is in charge of this church. Now, we are ruled through, I think the Baptist faith and message says, democratic processes. It didn't always say that. It does now. But that doesn't mean this is a democracy. Democracy, demos, the ruling of the people. We aren't in charge here. Our job is to determine, Lord, what are we supposed to do now? And then we do that. Now, do we always do that perfectly? No, we don't. Is it fine to do that through democratic processes? I believe it is. Is that the only way to do it? Obviously not. They cast lots. I think it's Proverbs 16, 33 that says the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. It's like, a, if you don't know what a lot is, like a dice, basically. They have these things, these markings, they throw it, and they're like, uh, blah, blah. okay, he says Matthias. So they recognize there's no such thing as coincidence or luck. We're going to pray. We don't know how to access the Lord. He's in heaven. We don't have the Holy Spirit yet. We don't know how to access him, but we need to make a decision. So let's all pray and ask him to reveal it and trust that he will. And they did. 
Now, without going into too much detail here, this passage isn't a prescriptive passage. It's a descriptive passage. What this means is, this isn't commanding us or prescribing for us a practice. We don't have to cast lots to find out what the Lord desires for us to do. Rather, it's describing what the early church did. Casting lots isn't required. Here's what is prayer. Prayer is required. How else are we going to know what the Lord Jesus wants us to do? We have to pray and say, Lord, would you please reveal to us your will here? And it should be alarming to us when we, a group of people, can all pray that prayer and then almost down the middle or whatever it is, decide the Spirit's leading this way or the polar opposite direction. Something is wrong. The early church prayed, Lord, reveal to us, and he did. And here is where we see our final observation, God's provision to the church. How is it that God provided for the church? He did it through prayer and his word. That's how he provides for us today, prayer and his word. God provided Matthias. How? The church studied the scriptures, then they prayed about it, and God gave him to them. I'm going to ask a very uncomfortable question for us this morning. Are you, like the early church, devoted to corporate prayer together with your church? Can we honestly say that we, with one accord, are devoting ourselves together with prayer with one another? To tie all of our points together this morning, God's power to fulfill his purpose for us is provided by the Holy Spirit through the touch points of prayer and the scriptures. The Spirit inspired the scriptures, and when we pray, the Spirit prays with us. And whenever God answers, he answers many times through the Holy Spirit. One of the reasons many of our churches are powerless is because they're prayerless. Sure, we pray at home or before a meal, but do you really think that's the extent to which God wants his people to pray? We have turned prayer into a formality. We know how to look real good in our prayers. I'm not, I'm not saying you shouldn't pray at mealtimes, but is it just a formality? Be honest. Even in the church service, it's so easy. We have these dedicated times to prayer. It would be so easy to slip from devotion and dedication and dependence on God to just got to pray now. And it become a formality. Jesus condemned the Jews in the temple saying, this is supposed to have been a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Now the church and the temple are two different things, but I think it's still right to ask, are we a house of prayer? This morning's passage makes one thing very clear about the early church. They were powered by, purposed by, and provided for by the Holy Spirit. And the way they tapped into that was prayer. And through the Holy Spirit, the early church, we're going to see, would change the world. How about you? How in tune are you this morning with the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is not a Pentecostal thing. He's a person of the Godhead. 
And he lives in every one of us, giving us unthinkable power at our fingertips to set the world ablaze with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what are we waiting for? Let's call upon the power. Let's stop remembering the good old days when the church would get together and be bursting at the seams and praying, and let's just start actually doing it. It will happen when we each decide individually, each one of us, I'm going to do that again. You don't have to wait for it to catch on first and then join the movement like the rest of the world does. Start the movement. Let's be a people of prayer. May we be a church that is utterly dependent upon the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus himself taught and demonstrated for us. May we access the power of God given through the Spirit through prayer. And may we use that power to fulfill our purpose, to be a witness to the ends of the earth. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that though you have ascended, you are still alive and well, reigning in your church. Lord, we confess to you that we are not in charge of this church. You are the commander-in-chief. And you lead and guide us, your people, through the Holy Scriptures which the Holy Spirit has inspired. And through the indwelling Holy Spirit within us as we pray and seek his will. Lord, would you make us into a powerful people, even if that means we won't be a big people or a popular people. Would you make us a powerful people, a testifying people, emboldened through the Holy Spirit to be witnesses, Lord. We want to experience revival desperately, Do not allow us, Lord, to try to seek revival apart from the power of your Holy Spirit. Do not let us do the right thing in the completely wrong way, never once depending upon your power to do so. Lord, protect us from our success if it means we might learn to be faithful witnesses. So that one day, Lord, we can see wonders as your church comes alive. Lord, we long for the day when our churches would all be filled and bursting at the seams. When people are gathered around in eager expectation of the power of God in our services. As you manifest yourself in us. Lord, I long for that day. We all long for that day. Fill us with your power. Embolden us to be your witnesses. Teach us, Lord, and show us how to live like the early church did. So that maybe, Lord, if you were willing, we might see what the early church saw. We thank you, Lord, that you have saved us from the realm of darkness, that you have rescued us 
from our pointless lives of living for self-satisfaction and fulfillment. We thank you that you have died paying the price for our sin, that we might be redeemed for such a glorious purpose. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to you as you have been faithful to us. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.